Hey guys, it's me back again with a new podcast. And today we are hopping into our Let's Talk segment. If you all don't know, this is a new segment that I do every Saturday. And I talk about just various things regarding books and go into detail about them in hopes to help um, young authors or just new authors in general. And today's topic is the 10 ingredients to making a great novel. Um, This is going to be a rather long episode, so just to make it easier on you guys, I am going to be splitting this up into two parts. Um, I'm going to try to keep them at 30 minutes each, Um, so I'll be doing five in one and then five in the other. So that all said, um, we're just going to hop on into this. the first thing that I really want to talk about regarding this, you know, these 10 ingredients is a strong opening, which is very fitting because this is the opening to the podcast. But um, a strong opening is very important in drawing a reader in. Uh, this is really kind of your prime area that you should really focus on and really kind of pinpoint how exactly you want this story to open up and play out for your readers. Um, your, or, your opening is what is going to make or break a reader's willingness to continue reading something, and it is the perfect opportunity to tantalize a reader with incomplete knowledge. Um, by incomplete knowledge, I mean, you know, anything mysterious that could affect later on, you know, whether it's a mysterious past that they may be hinting at, a mysterious person in their life, or just a mysterious object in general. Um, this is also where you can kind of hint at the main character's involvement or lack of involvement of not yet introduced characters as well as the main character's convenience. Um, for those who don't know what convenience means, it is the, uh, the willingness to secretly allow or be involved in wrongdoing. So this is kind of the perfect stuff for rebellious characters. Um, I do have a few examples and everything that I have researched, I'm going to be putting the links to those sites into the description box below so that way you guys can also find this information because those people are gonna not ramble as much as I am they're gonna kind of put things together a little bit better than maybe me so um, I'm gonna be definitely putting those down there and giving them credit Um, but my first example is a book called The Stranger and it is written by Albert Camus Uh, the opening is mother died today or maybe yesterday I can't be sure So this is like a very well done opening because it does lead the reader to immediately start speculating on various things. Um, The first being, you know, how did this person's mother die? And the second leads into why doesn't this person remember? Because that's obviously something that you think that someone would remember. They would remember how their parent died or at least, you know, when. And, you know, it then finally brings you to who is this person, you know? It kind of wraps it all into one and immediately makes the reader want to really find out these answers for themselves. Another great example is actually the book Peter Pan, written by J.M. Barry. And their opening is, all children except one grow up. It's very simple, very short, but it, again, allows the reader to have that immediate speculation on, you know, what do they mean just you know except one child what do they mean metaphorically do they mean mentally they don't grow up like it kind of just immediately draws you in and makes you want to find out these answers for yourself um 
I also want to point out that the beginning of your story really does set a tone and a theme of your book. And this doesn't mean those two things have to or will stay the same throughout your story's progression, but it does kind of roll out a red carpet for your reader to really make them decide, you know, is this book for me? Is this something I'm going to enjoy and going to like? Will I want to recommend this to friends, you know? I personally have kind of a three chapter rule. If I can make it past the three chapters and I'm still enjoying it, I'm more than likely going to finish the story. But if I don't enjoy it after the first chapter, um, then it's really kind of me just like forcing myself to read the second two chapters and then finally I'll be like, hey, you know what? It's not for me. And that's just how it is. But the first chapter is definitely your most important chapter because, you know, you could have all this great content later on in your story, but you have to get your readers to get there. You know what I mean? You have to give them something to cling to to get them to those great moments. Otherwise, they're never going to see it. They're just going to put it down and they'll never know that there were these great things in your story hidden there. Um, the second thing I want to talk about is a satisfying and fitting writing style for you. You know, when it comes to writing styles, it, it's kind of a tricky topic because it's definitely something you're really going to have to play around with before you actually find your individual style. You know, one thing I can definitely say that I personally struggled a lot with, and it took me quite some time to really understand how to probably avoid these as well as why they don't really work, is adverbs. You know, adverbs are when you say things like, I hurriedly ran to the door. You know, instead of, you know, ran hurriedly, now I would use the word dashed, raced, or charged. You know, it's still giving the same uh, visual, but it's saying it more simplistically and also I feel like anything that like dashed, raced, or charged just kind of gives it an extra oomph and it kind of flows a little bit better and you know your writing style is where you're going to get that flow from and, and you know I don't want to like paint the picture that adverbs aren't like the adverbs are bad but they, they are a less descriptive and just like many things you know there is such a thing as too much so definitely if you ever do use an adverb use them sparsely and try to stick to the best you can to using the eds instead of the ing's and ly's um another important thing is, is your rhythm and rhythm is very important too because it adds dimension to a story and you know creating your own rhythm never really happens overnight it kind of goes with the writing style you know they kind of come hand in hand it, it's something you're really going to have to work on and really hone and don't force it you know play with it, test some things out, and find out what really does work best for you because your rhythm or any author's, it's going to be your distinguished style. Nobody else is going to write the same way that you do. You know, we may have same turn of phrases and stuff like that, but just like we, when we hear like an actress or an actor or a singer, you know, if they have a distinguishable voice, we can immediately be like, oh yeah, that's Matthew McConaughey or that's Ariana Grande. Like, those are very distinguishable voices. And just like with voices, authors can have distinguishable writing styles. You know, when you read something that's Stephen King, you know it's Stephen King. When you read something that's Tolkien, you know it's Tolkien. And it's because they have very distinguishable styles. And they're very different, too. Those two authors are very different in style. Um, so it's definitely something that, like, even I myself, I'm 24 years old. You know, granted, I'm still young, but I've been writing since I was 11. And... I still don't really know for sure what my writing style is. I'm still kind of learning that for myself. 
and I'm figuring it out. You know, I was a first person writer for so long and now I'm kind of turning into a third person writer. So it's definitely something that you're going to have to really play with and don't put too much pressure on yourself with it. You know, writing is a learning curve. It is something that we are constantly growing and learning how to do better with. You know, you're never not going to stop growing unless you stop being humble. You know, I have this really big saying that the moment you stop being humble is the moment you stop growing as an author. Um, If you can't find a flaw in your work, then you're never going to grow. Moving on to the third one. Um, So this one is by far the longest one. I have so please bear with me I apologize it is a lot of information and if I'm going way too fast I do apologize but this is also why I'm going to be linking those sites down below so you guys have a reference to go by um, so powerful descriptions you guys know if you've listened to my podcast once or twice I am a huge stickler on descriptors I love detail and I love seeing people give me that detail you know it's when I see a lack of detail that I have a problem with it Um, but you know the best descriptions are the ones that leave an impression on your readers you know they are easy to understand they're creative and they're also profound in their own way Um, and and most importantly they're memorable and they can be comprehended by everybody you know this kind of just includes um, (laughs) you know children of course you know if they're reading at a second grade level they're probably not going to be able to read you know something that a 16 year old could read but you know it it should be something that's easily comprehended that everyone can be like oh okay I know he's talking about 11 um and you know with this said there there are many things that make a powerful descriptor so you know we're just gonna hop on into this this is when it might get a little confusing and I apologize um firstly you know when you come to your descriptors don't be afraid to be specific you know avoid summary descriptions and when I say that I mean avoid like giving a whole entire paragraph describing a lemon like if a whole paragraph is just you describing a lemon that's too much (laughs) you know you want to make sure you are offering your readers information that engages them and you know explain each detail in a way that holds their attention but also affects the senses so if you're describing a lemon maybe you know you start off talking about its color and shape and then maybe have your character eat it and like describe the taste you know and like kind of give us that tart kind of lemony sour feeling but don't go too far into it you know you just do it subtly you know (laughs) you don't want to go too far off with a lemon like it is just a lemon um i do have an example uh and this is a i have a bad example and i have a good example um so the bad one is just the sun is yellow so it's short, sweet, and to the point, but it is lacking. It, it is lacking detail. Um, so a good example of this would be the sun's blinding rays painted the room with its yellowish glow. So this is kind of giving you more of a surrounding detail. So you're kind of getting the idea that the whole entire room has this like yellowish tint to it from the setting sun, or even the rising sun. You know, so it's still saying that the sun is yellow, but it's doing it in a way that's you know, involving the entire character's surroundings instead of just one simple thing. Does that make sense? Um, and, and when you write a scene, I, you know, just always, I have three things that I'd like you guys to try to keep in mind. You know, the first is 
do you do your words paint an image if your words aren't painting an image for you they're not going to paint an image for anybody else um the second one is do they put the reader in the moment and by in the moment i mean we're going to touch on this a little bit later too um making your reader feel like they are included instead of an observer so you know are you putting your reader in this moment with your character you know and this goes way beyond just the setting this goes with emotion and this goes with you know um you know the, the things that are spoken like how the dialogue is laid out um and finally do they make the reader feel like they're participants in the story instead of just observers so i kind of went with that with the first one uh the second one but you know that that is really a vital a vital thing because you know, if I'm reading a story and there's not a lot of detail, the reason why I get so mad about the lack of detail is because I can't connect to the story. You're not giving me anything to grip onto that's going to make me feel like I'm actually there, which is why when I'm like, oh, it's like I did this and I did that, I did this and I did that. The reason why it bothers me is because it's not bringing the reader along with the character. You know, we're just kind of seeing this like as if we're observers from the clouds or like a fly on the wall. So. You really want to make sure you're engaging your readers in a way that makes them feel like they are a part of the story because that is where you're going to get those readers who cry when your characters cry or who laugh when your characters laugh, who find something funny, who can feel that pain, that love, that joy that you give your characters. Um, that, that's how you make that connection. And so that's why detail really is important. It may not seem it, especially with the tedious stuff like saying the sun's blinding rays painted the room with its yellowish glow, but it does matter because if you're like describing the sun still and there's a cat laying down you're describing a cat sunbathing you're gonna want to get that warmth of the sun against their, their fur and how that might feel like how it, like you know like those days when you're sitting in the sun they have that warmth of the sun hitting your cheek and it's just this like warm glow throughout your whole body and it feels as if you want to nap that is the kind of image that you want to really portray to your reader and connect to them with you know what I mean like you want them to feel that sun you want them to feel that warmth so just always keep that in mind um, I'll stop rambling on about that and we'll move on to limited modifiers um, this is still part of number three by the way so modifiers are something you'll want to try and really cut down on because they really don't describe words, or at least they don't specify words in a way that you may think that they do. Um, this is where editing really is a crucial factor. Um, you know, you can spend your time to really look over your sentences to make sure the action maximizes your descriptions to their fullest potential. Um, and an example of this is, uh, this is from John Gingeridge's uh, article. Um, I actually really loved the way he worded it, so I'm actually going back to really quote him correctly because he honestly, I, I do have his link in here and I do suggest looking over his stuff because he has a lot of really great articles that I think even myself could really learn from, but to move on with that, so he has for the bad example they arrived at the house just behind the streaming line of fire trucks, their street alive in the opulent glow of lights and sirens, their house ablaze in a per perennial bloom of orange and yellow. And he wrote, unfortunately, this story was published before. This is like one of his own works. 
So he was giving his own examples of his works and how he wrote things before and how he's writing things now. And he said um, that looking at it five years later, the sentence would have been fine if I simply cut down on the modifiers and let the action breathe. And so he wrote a newer version that says, They arrived at the house just behind the fire trucks, the street alive in a glow of lights and sirens, their house ablaze. Um, he wrote, Notice how this version places an emphasis on the verbs. Moreover, there's another advantage gained here. In the first version, the sentence ends with a description of the colors of the blaze, hardly essential information. Now emphasis is placed on the most important information in the sentence, and in this case, the entire story, the burning house. If you want to draw extra emphasis to anything, put it at the end of the sentence. Placing it at the beginning is a close second. Never bury important information in the middle. And I really wanted to read that directly from his article just because, you know, it couldn't have been worded in a better way. And I... I'm not going to try to repeat anything he just said because you guys already heard it, but, you know, it really is essential to really kind of limit those modifiers and, you know, really decide what is important information and what really isn't. And if you're wondering if it isn't and you've got the question if it is or isn't, it probably isn't. So just kind of cut it out and, you know, be done with it and just keep that important information where it should be. Um, the, another thing uh, regarding the powerful descriptions is using figurative language. Um, this is when you use a word or a phrase that doesn't have its normal everyday literal meaning. Um, these things, just a few of them include metaphors, personification, similes, and hyperboles. And I'm only going to be touching on these four just because I think these ones are the most common mistake and they're also the most important in my opinion. So, we're going to kick it off with similes. Um, similes are a figure of speech comparing two things that aren't alike, often introduced by the words like or as. Example is, the sun is like a yellow ball of fire in the sky. Um, this example is a simile because it is comparing two things, and they are different, but they're using a word such as like as a comparison word. So, it's comparing the two words with the word like. Because um, it's saying the sun is like a yellow ball of fire in the sky, which it is. Anyways, uh, personification. Uh, this gives something human quality. An example is the stuffed bear smiled as the little boy hugged him close. You know, adding this similarity, you know, or I'm sorry, adding this phrase, you know, the bear smiled, it does give the bears, you know, some human qualities. And we all know that the bear was probably designed to have a smile forever on its face. Like, it's probably just the way it was created. But with the author using this phrase, they are painting a picture of happiness and joy from the boy to the bear. And even though the bear can't feel things, the boy can. And so just creating this, like, energy of happiness and just a really good moment. So, I mean, it, it has its purpose. You know, even though the bear's not real, you know, it still played its part and it gave off that ambiance in the, you know, you know, <laughs> uh, metaphors, uh, comparing two things by using one kind of object or using in place of another, just, just the likeness between two things. I absolutely love metaphors. Unfortunately, I kind of suck at them. And before I give the example, I just want to say, if you also struggle with metaphors, some people can like get them like, like that, like they're just amazing at them. They just can think them out of a, like, I don't know. They just pull them out of thin air. But one thing I can definitely say is don't force it. Forcing anything when it comes to writing is going to, you know, make you 
end up with a product you're not going to like. Um, also, if you actually do end up getting a really good metaphor, I have made this mistake so many times. Do not try to force a second one. If it came to you naturally, it is 9 out of 10, the only one you're going to get for quite a while. <laughs> um, but like I said, don't try to force anything because it's not going to end up being your best work. So, the example I have for that was her hair was silk. And we all know the writer isn't saying the girl's hair is literal silk, but it tells the reader in fewer words than through comparison that the girl's hair is soft and or shiny. Another uh, phrase that I've commonly seen in romance novels especially is her skin was soft as rose petals. And we all know rose petals, if you've ever touched one or any petal at all on a flower, they are very soft, they're very silky. Um, and so that's a, like, that's a metaphor for someone's skin, like being soft and smooth and silky. It's just saying it in a more eloquent way. Um, and then the last thing is hyperpolies. <laughs> These are uh, generally, generally, you know, really big exaggerations. And they are typically written in comedic moments. The example that I have is a mile high ice cream cone. You know, obviously they're not really a mile high, you know, but the writer is having the character exaggerate the tallness of this ice cream for one, from comedic purposes. And also I would think that this is probably in the eyes of a child. And if you remember anything you've seen when you were a kid and then you see it now as an adult, it looks different to you because you were seeing it through, you know, a smaller view, you know what I mean? So you know, it's it's meant to be exaggerated and it's meant to be kind of funny. Um, and to end the third ingredient, you know, when it comes to your detail, your most beneficial thing to learn is to know the balance between too little information and too much. And we all know the consequences of having too little information. You know, there's too little, there's really not much to work with. And, you know, Joseph and I, in our interview we had today, we actually touched upon the fact that, you know, it's better to have too much information and then go through and edit it out and get rid of some things to simplify it. And it's much harder to have little information and try to add to it. So, you know, find that balance, but, you know, don't overload your reader with, you know, either too much knowledge or just plain out boring information. You know, we all know I've mentioned Tolkien on my podcast before. He's a very well-known author. He is the author of the Lord of the Rings series and the Hobbit series. And he's he's a brilliant he's a brilliant man, and you know he he opened up doors for fantasy writers. Um, but many, including myself, will always say that like Tolkien could go on for three pages about just a bark on a tree, you know. And it's not because he's a bad writer; it's just because he would prattle on about this tree for three pages. And you know, unfortunately, it's boring. And he has amazing moments in his stories. He has an amazing world that he built, and. It's, you know, it's an amazing, it's an amazing book, but when you have those, you know, those boring spots, you tend to lose your readers, and that kind of goes along with what I said about, you know, making sure that, you know, yes, you may have these amazing spots in your book, but you have to make sure your readers can get to those amazing spots. You know, they're not going to get to those amazing spots with all this boring information, because they're just going to be like, you know what? this isn't for me, it's too slow paced, you know, it's too this, it's too that, and they're just going to not read it. Um, moving on to the fourth ingredient is subplots. And I love subplots because I think they're so interesting and I love the, like, the way people do them. I have dabbled in them myself a little bit and I'm going to use one of my stories very vaguely as an example. Um, so subplots 
um, are secondary strands of the main plot that support the main story, but not directly. Um, these typically connect to the main story in some way or the other, whether it be in time, place, or thematic significance. Um, for those who don't know, this, the thematic significance of a story is a statement the story illustrates to be true. Um, these are also often including supporting characters that are not either the main character or the, I'm sorry, the main antagonist or the main protagonist. Um, a great example of this from a published novel is Romeo and Juliet. And for those who live under a rock, <laughs> Romeo and Juliet is a love story about two people falling in love. Uh, but they have these rivaling two houses, which is the Capulets and the Montagues. And this drama between the two houses kind of creates this forbidden love between these two characters. And this conflict causes various deaths to people who know the couple and are close to them in some way or the other. I believe in one scene alone, two, Ju Juliet and Romeo both lost somebody. Uh, Juliet lost a cousin and Romeo lost a friend. Um, and even though there were these deaths, this, these deaths kind of still affected the story in some way because it made these two lovers more determined to find a way to end this feud finally and to be together and to, you know, overcome something like this. So, you know, even though the, there was like a side spot with, you know, Macbeth and I forget the cousin's name, but, and her cousin, and they ended up dying, like, these deaths still affected that story in some way or the other that moved it forward in the direction that the author wanted it to go. Um, a piece of advice though is like, don't get excessive with some plots. You know, sometimes I know that it's like a little hard to like reel back your creative energy and kind of like be like, okay, okay, I'll stop here. But for those who are just starting out, a rule of thumb is to keep your subplots to two at the max. I personally have never done more than one. Um, you know, I mean, one thing that I've done with one of my stories is I had a character that, you know, she was going through a lot of stuff and she met this other person who made a deal with her. And this, you get this other person's point of view who made the deal, and it's a new character's point of view, but you're also hearing him have this conversation with somebody who sounds really shady. And you don't know who the person is, but you have this side story now going on in the story of the main character, which is going to move that story in a direction it needs to go. So when you are doing a subplot, you know, there are a few things that you really want to keep in mind. And, you know, one of them is to make sure your subplot makes sense and plays well with your main plot. You should never let your subplot outshine the main plot ever. Like, that should never be an issue. You know, I mean, it can have its significance, but it can't take away from what the readers are really here for. Um, and you want to give your subplots narrative arcs. You know, don't shy away from that at all. Like, you really want to, like, also have these, like, connections with these stories and still that character development going on. Um, and if you do choose to write a subplot, you know, write a character-driven subplot. By this, you know, I, I mean, like, just just like your main story, characters should drive the action in a subplot. You know, they should create foils that can highlight qualities in your main character. And these characters will either help or hinder the protagonist in the story somehow or some way. Um, and you also want to make sure and figure out how the subplot connects to the main plot. And create tension. Like, really just amp up that tension because it's going to make your readers be like, oh, oh, shit's going down. Oh, damn. Oh, damn. You know? It's just, it's a great time. <laughs> um, so, the fifth one, which is the one we're going to be ending this part of the segment, um, is Immersive Setting. And this is a great story 
you know, this is a great story. Immersive setting is, a, is you know, a great story has captivating and memorable settings. And with this, you want to make a place, a character. You want to go beyond the shape and color of a house. You know, is, is it is it old? Is it dark? Is it dingy? Or, on the contrary, is it charming? Grand? Is it elegant? You know, what makes it any of these things? You know, does it smell homey? Is it comforting? Or does it smell like, you know, mildew? Is it damp and musty? You know, giving the setting something unique to make it memorable. You know, several ways you can do this are, you know, by setting the mood, give depth and context to the world your character's in, uh, amplify the conflict and tension in each scene. And by that, I really mean, like, really kind of like, say like we're in a paranormal house right which i would never go into my friends would never make me go like they could die all they want like I, i'm not going you know if a ghost gets them it's their time <laughs> but say it's a paranormal story right and you're bringing your character to the scene like one thing you want to take in consideration is is a paranormal setting normal for this character or is this a new world for her or him you know secondly you know those like jump scares you get in shows or games or something like that you want to kind of build up that tension with that and really kind of make it kind of spooky. Like, set the mood. Like, is it ominous? Is it eerie? Are things, like, opening when they shouldn't be? Is the floorboards creaking? Is the door squeaking open? Like, what is going on? Like, what is building this tension for these characters? And that goes with, you know, revealing elements of characterization. You know, how are these characters reacting to all this stuff going on? You know, because you usually have... You have the one friend who's a scaredy cat. You have the other friend who tries to pretend to be brave and, like, he's not going to die anytime soon. And then you have the other friend who is kind of like, I don't care. I ain't afraid of no ghost, you know? And they're kind of like open to it. And then for some reason, there's always that one person who's like, you know, taunting the ghost. Like, you know, come on, get out of here. But, you know, you just always want to make sure that you're kind of really setting that for the reader because that's going to amp them up and that's going to make them be like oh my god what's going to happen like what's happening like what are we doing you know what I mean um and you want to deepen the story's theme with that and you know that's the theme would be paranormal you know and like this might be the pivotal moment in the story where this this really sets the tone for this story and for this character and really kind of kicks in that character development that we all know and love um and you also just want to make the place change throughout the story's progression. You know, if this is a, a really, really great home at first, you know, like it's a paranormal house right now, does it age well or badly throughout this this time? You know, just, you know, bad things happen to it due to the paranormal effect. You know, if it started off as a fixer-upper house, you know, it's pretending like this is like a new couple buying their first house in the beginning of the story. Throughout the story, do they start working on it? So does, if they're working on it, does the house change like throughout the story? And if it was elegant in the beginning, does it crumble as it ages? You know, you just want to add those minor details. It doesn't have to be, you know, a page-long event. You know, just a simple little, like, you know, if they fixed the house, you know, like, and now the bathroom that once smelled of mildew and mold now resembled that of a polished... I don't know, guys. It's like 7 in the morning. I don't, I don't know. But you get what I'm saying. You know, you just want to make sure that you're adding these little details so that we know that time is actually moving in these stories as well. <laughs> it's not just that they're sitting at a standstill. Um, but that is the first five that I have for you guys right now. 
So I'm going to end this segment here because I am at 31 minutes and I want to make sure that I'm going to keep these around the same time frame of 30 minutes each. Um, I do hope you guys are enjoying this so far. I'm, I'm really enjoying kind of diving on in and really sharing all the research I've done and all the information that I have for myself and my own personal experiences. And I hope that you guys are, are gaining something from this. Um, but I will end this and I will jump on in so you guys have the next segment to go to right after. All right, bye.